Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We are a podcast about board games, tabletop games, and tabletop war games. Today, we're going to be talking about Frostgrave. Yay! I'm shivering with anticipation, or frostbite, I haven't decided which. Probably frostbite. I'm the host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and joining me today in this wintry city of magic... I'm Ed, always Ed, my pronouns are they and them. But before we get into Frostgrave, we're gonna do our segment, The Week in Hobby. So, this last week I've played a few different games. I ran my Eberron campaigns, uh, both of which managed to get to a dragon and get a prophecy, a little chunk of the draconic prophecy that Eberron is all about. In both cases, it told them, it talked a little bit about their characters and then a lot about various things in the future they're going to face. Always in super vague terms, though, so if I change things, it won't be that much of an issue. And I also ran a game of The Sprawl, which is a cyberpunk game based on the Powered by the Apocalypse system. Dice-wise, it's a 2d6 rather than d20s, and it uses a system of moves that's kind of interesting. Uh, We'll talk about it further in probably its own episode at some point. I have enjoyed it so far. Yeah, I've, uh, we'll see where that goes. The players, well, we're doing another one next week, so we'll talk about that at some point. It's going to be an every other week kind of game. Going to have some entertaining players with entertaining shenanigans. One of them nearly got taken out by not getting out of the back of an automated cargo van that was getting reloaded by robots, and he just kind of sat there while the robots started throwing packages around. Whoopsie-daisy. Yeah! Worst Amazon job ever. Yes, they were going after Zon, as the company was named. Kneel before Zon. Yeah, well, in Neo-Portland, you gotta do what you gotta do, and if that is break into a Zon warehouse and uh, install a virus onto their servers, that's where the money is. That's where you get your cred. Praxis. That too. How about you, Ed? How was your weekend hobby? Uh, I had an amazingly shitty week, but somehow still managed to get my hobby stuff in. Played some D&D. That one was kind of an off week, but it happens. Back on to painting after I broke two desk chairs for having the temerity to try and paint. Iron Man is now done. Not quite sure who I'm going to move on to next. I'm contemplating unboxing some of the other Crisis Protocol stuff that I have and getting that primed up. But I should probably also finish what I have before I start any of the other expansions. Uh, started working on the Goose Hydra, which will be perfect for our topic today whenever that game gets to happen again in person. Oh, yeah. And... I'm still staring menacingly at my Infinity guys, trying to decide whether or not to re-sculpt the bases that I did for them, because they have the stereotypical cyberpunk hexagons. And I think the sculpting putty that I was using has gotten a bit old, so it's still very lumpy, so it doesn't have a very smooth finish on it, and I'm not sure if I can try and, like, sand that down or cut it down with a knife so that it looks smooth. But I also know that I'll probably have another breakdown if I try and rip up all these Infinity guys and put them back together again. Yeah, that's rough. Make plastic Infinity models. Just do it. I would agree with that statement. Or or resin. Resin for Infinity models would be nice. Yeah, resin would be kind of a good middle ground because Corvus, they're kind of a small company. And resin has lower uh, buy-in, I guess, as far as making the models if they were to go fully over to plastic that would be a very large investment because those uh metal dies that they use for abs plastic casting are crazy expensive yeah um i know they're moving towards resin for some of their larger models the tags and whatnot yeah that'll be nice because those things are huge and i really want the lf tag because it just looks awesome and i assume it's a beast on the tabletop but 
I get give myself nightmares thinking about trying to put that thing together. Yeah, I think when the um the tag specific game that they kickstarted comes out, that'll be mostly resin or plastic models. Oh yeah, uh, I think it's called Tag Rumble. Yeah, something like that. And I think those are going to be all resin, plastic, whatever. So once that's out, I imagine they'll expand that line pretty heavily. Yeah, I'm I'm marginally interested in Tag Rumble. I don't know if it's one that I would want to jump in on right out the gate. Uh, but they do have another one called Aristria, which is kind of like a gladiator sport type deal set in the infinity universe that has a lot of really kind of nifty characters and seems kind of goofy. Uh, that's another one that I might be interested in, but at this point I've, I should finish what I have. (laughs) Yeah. The box of shame is getting pretty big for me too. I haven't done much painting, but they're all sitting on my desk looking at me. So mine's less shameful. I'm just, very, very slow. Yeah, I just, I primed all these guys in November, and they've been sitting on my desk since, so mm-hmm. I should do something, even if it's like, take them off my desk and put them in a box where I don't have to look at them and be reminded that I'm not painting things when I should be painting things. Yeah, mine's kind of like a mix between primed and half-painted. All my Infinity Extras are primed. A majority of the Infinity stuff is like half-painted, And then I've got some random props and terrain from Crisis Protocol that's half-painted. And it's looking better than it was, or at least compared to before I moved. But maybe just now I have more storage space where I can put all the shameful things in a box and not have to look at them until I'm ready to actually work on it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, definitely a good trick. Just put the shameful things aside and focus in on the things that you can actually work on. Yay, painting. Yes, and on that note, which isn't really a good segue, let's talk about Frostgrave. Woo! My possibly favorite all-time tabletop game. I like it. I don't know that it's my all-time favorite tabletop game. We'll get into the reasons for that a little later, but Frostgrave. Frostgrave is a miniature agnostic warband skirmish game written by Joseph McCulloch and published by Osprey Games. The original edition was published in 2015, and the second edition came out in 2020. Most of the things we're going to reference are second edition. There weren't a huge amount of changes between them. There weren't a lot of changes, but they were good quality of life changes. It wasn't like they just picked a bunch of stuff and said, okay, we need to change this. It was very much focused on issues that the original version of the game had, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I think there were a lot of spells that got sorted out, cleaned up, um, the way certain things worked, stat lines, and so on and so forth. And I think army building got adjusted a little in a way that makes a lot more sense, I think. Yeah, the way that the uh, warband composition uh, is done has changed instead of basically just being able to take whoever you want. There's a limit on specialists now, and I think even the specialists themselves also have limits on how many of them you can take. You get, I think, a max of four specialists per warband, which is roughly about half of your army. So it kind of makes sense, especially as you get deeper into the campaign, that you're not going to have one player who has an army that's made up entirely of crusaders and who can just tank their way through the game. Uh, you still have to make use of some of the other more uh, meat shieldy guys or war dogs. It it seems to work. I'm I'd have to play more of it to be super convinced, but I think it does a good job of kind of balancing how the war bands work. Yeah, so let's talk about the game. Each player has control of a wizard their apprentice, and their warband, which is mercenaries, bodyguards, cultists, whatever. And you venture into the frozen ruins of an ancient city known as Felstad, seeking magical treasures, lost knowledge, money, whatever. It's 
a game that is clearly inspired by classic fantasy skirmish games, uh, most specifically Mordheim, which featured bands of mercenaries and cutthroats venturing into the ruins of a destroyed city for magical power. And also just by general fantasy aspects. The game is quite generic in terms of setting. Aside from the Frozen City, you can basically make up anything you want around that for your wizard and warband. And that's by far possibly the reason that I love it most is it feels like a, a neg to say that it's just the genericness of the game, but it just opens up so many creative opportunities in my brain that I'm like, yep, just make that all happen. If I want a time-traveling chronomancer who has a Navy Seal, Navy Seal as an archer and a Roman centurion as a bodyguard, nothing says I can't. Definitely not. So the game is also mostly scenario-driven. Each player takes their warband onto the table, there are treasure tokens on it, and they try to do something there while something else is happening. The scenarios range from just real basic things like there's something in the center of the table that you have to get or there's a monster that's in around and you you're gonna have to fight it to more complicated stuff there's dungeons there's linked scenarios there's like a minecart chase there's a bunch of stuff oh I, where's the minecart chase i haven't seen that one yet uh it's in the second edition core book there's a minecart one i'm so i must have skipped over some of the scenarios when i was reading through it but yeah i'm all about that Let's make that happen. Yeah, the core resolution mechanic of the game is opposed d20 rolls. When you do a thing against a pl another player or a monster, you, eat, you roll a d20, higher number wins, relevant modifiers can increase or decrease the number. This is pretty simple. If two people are fighting, you each rolls a d20, whoever gets the highest wins, and then whatever that number is over the armor of the person is how much damage is done. Armor usually starts around 10-ish. Yep, 10 I think is the base. So if you get more than 10, you're going to do damage. For wizards, casting spells are also done using a d20 roll, although in this case it's against a specific number and you're trying to get above that. A wizard who's very good at a spell may only need to roll 7+. plus. Wizards can take damage from like magical feedback if they fail to roll too badly. If you're trying to get a 10 and you roll a 6, I think you're going to take a point of damage. And the spell doesn't go off. You can also empower spells to make sure they get cast by spending health. So if you rolled a 9 and were trying to get a 10, you could spend a point of health to bump up that die roll. As your wizard, like, strains and spends their life in order to make sure the spell gets cast. I generally try and play my wizard pretty safe, so I don't use that mechanic a whole lot. But every once in a while, it does come in handy when you just need, like, one extra digit on your uh, roll. Yeah, I think it's a very good ability to have if you're trying to make sure that that clutch thing goes off. And it's a way that you can sort of represent your wizard spending resources beyond just magic to make something happen when it's important. On the other end of that, I have also had my wizard fail spells so badly that it nearly killed them. Yes, that does happen, and it's amazing. Uh, the wizards and their warbands are based on a selection of stat lines. The stat lines are for wizards and apprentices are pretty much all the same for every player. Each wizard picks a school of magic that they specialize in and gets a number of spells from that school and related schools. The ten different specializations are Chronomancer, Elementalist, Enchanter, Illusionist, Necromancer, Sigilist, Soothsayer, Summoner, Thaumaturge, and Witch. The various wizards have an easier time casting spells from their specialization and the schools aligned with it, and a harder time casting spells from the ones that are opposed to it. The Apprentice is just a weaker version of the wizard. So once you have a wizard and an apprentice, the rest of the warband consists of a collection of soldiers, mercenary, bodyguards, or whatever is laying around. Classes for these include thug, thief, man-at-arms, treasure hunter, knight, marksman, and a bunch of others. 
each has a slightly different specialization. There are basic soldiers and specialists. The basic ones are, some of them are free to recruit and the rest of them are quite cheap. So no matter how bad a player is doing during a campaign sequence, they can always find somebody to fill in their roster. Because thugs and thieves are free. Yep. The specialists are much more expensive, and they do different things. There's like, one of them has a crossbow, one of them has a bow, some of them have certain other abilities, or really good armor and health. They're a lot more expensive, and as you level up your warband, as you get more treasure, buying more and better specialists is one of the key components to making your warband beefy and good at the game. So, how do you get gold? By playing the missions. Each mission has a number of treasure tokens on the table, usually five. Uh, this is two kind of on each player's side and one right in the middle. To get the treasure, you have to have somebody go up, grab it, and then take it off the edge of the table. Usually your edge of the table, although different scenarios will have different rules about what edges you can go off of. Having your warband grab the treasure and carry it off the table gives you the money that you'll need to fund your expedition and also can provide new gear, magical scrolls, potions, other cool effects that, you know, make your team better and more fun. It's the whole reason you're there. Well, one of the reasons. The other reason, besides treasure, is to level up your wizard. As you gain experience, which you get from completing missions, doing scenario-specific things, killing people, and casting spells, importantly, you level up, which gives you improvements to stats and also makes it easier to cast spells. You can reduce the number you're trying to hit in order to cast a certain spell. The spells have a huge variety of, in what they do. Some of them are just basic fireball, where you shoot, a, uh, make a ranged attack against somebody and do damage. Others allow you to summon zombies or golems. Some of them teleport people. Some of them have other more interesting effects, like letting you take a second turn, or fight really well, or heal an ally. There's also some like Wall, which creates a 6-inch long, 3-inch high wall on the field. Walls everywhere. Yeah, Wall gets taken a lot because using that to control the battle and like split stuff up so that it's easier for you to grab things is very important. We had a uh, one particular scenario where there's a giant man-eating worm that's traveling underneath the board and... Each turn, you roll a die, and depending on what you roll, the worm may or may not show up. And by this point in the game, we were all kind of clustered in the middle of the table, trying to grab the treasure, and the worm shows up right in the middle of the table, so we immediately all just try and run as far as we can, because the worm is pretty beefy and can kill your guys really easy, and we just start throwing up walls left and right to make sure that the worm can't see us and that we can get away. Yeah, um, and that's why the scenarios are so much fun. They provide more than just a standard beat up the opponent or capture this or that. They have a whole list of cool things that can go on and a whole bestiary of various monsters that can show up either specifically for a mission or just randomly. When you have the monsters arrive and start attacking your guys, it makes it hard because the monsters typically come in from the table edge. And your guys are typically lugging treasure back off the table edge. So in the game, you have a sequence of turns like most tabletop games. Frostgrave is interesting because the turns are kind of structured a little differently. You have a wizard phase, an apprentice phase, and then a like, what is it, soldier phase I think is the third one? Yep, wizard, apprentice, and then soldier. Yeah, so wizard phase, apprentice phase, soldier phase. During the wizard phase, you activate the wizard, and you can group activate one or two models next to them. During the apprentice phase, you activate the apprentice, and same deal, you can group activate one or two models next to them. During the soldier phase, each player activates all the remaining soldiers that didn't get group activated with the wizard or the apprentice. And you alternate these phases. Whoever has initiative takes the first wizard phase, 
Then the other player takes their wizard phase. Then the first player takes their apprentice phase. Then the other player. And then at the end of each turn, all the monsters on the table activate and go and try and kill whatever's closest to them. Or do whatever the scenario specifically dictates. This makes it kind of an interesting balance between single model or single unit I go, you go games with alternating things and it, the entire army goes at once and then back and forth. And you can also group activate during the wizard phase. If you have minions who are within two inches of the wizard, they can activate as a group of three and it's a good kind of tempo mechanic because it allows you to put your dudes in positions where you would want them for later or bring your numbers to bear faster than you would if you were just going back and forth model to model. Yeah, it provides an interesting sort of swap between, uh, an interesting balance between I go, you go, and whole turn games. And each model can do essentially a movement and an action. That action can be additional movement, but if you do that, you only get half of it. And so it, it leads to, like, you run up, you grab the treasure. You run up, you attack someone. You shoot somebody, and then you move. You move and then cast a spell. All that sort of stuff. It's very simple rules-wise. It's not overly complicated. The dice mechanic is just d20s back and forth. The stat lines are all very self-explanatory. People have move stat, a like fight stat, a shoot stat. It's not rules heavy. It's not rules heavy. The rules are there just to create a good baseline for what you can do, and then the interesting stuff comes not from the rules, but from the scenarios and the various types of monsters and the big list of spells that you can pick from. The rules are just kind of a framework that give the game the structure it needs to support all the cool stuff that you get added on. Which I like. That is a... That's kind of how the rules should be, I feel. When you make a rule system that is overly yeah. intricate and complicated and does all these neat things, that can be cool, but every time you bolt something else on, it starts to, you know, lean and tilt and get a little crooked. It's like 5e D&D. It has a good framework of how the game is supposed to run, but it leaves a lot kind of up to your own imagination and your own playgroup's style that you can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah, I would say that's uh, you know pretty reasonable thing to say. So that's how the game runs. That's the scenarios. That's all the rules stuff. Let's talk about the other half of the game, because Frostgrave is a miniatures war game. Woo! Not a role-playing game, not a board game. It's a miniatures game. Although, with the way that I've always tended to play it, we almost run it as if it was an RPG because we give our characters personalities and all that and create in-depth stories of what happens during each game. And that's just kind of one of the advantages of playing a skirmish-type game is you're not working with an entire army. You can have that kind of much more like little personalized experience. Yeah, no, I would agree. It is a game that does really well for creating stories out of the battles that you fight. Uh, the personalities, the fact that it's being led by a wizard and an apprentice, and like what you get from their personalities and their designs and concept, plus all the various bodyguards or mercenaries that they hire, it, it's very good for telling stories, and it's great for that. But it is a miniature game. It has an official line of miniatures produced by North Star military figures. They are actually really good for generic multi-part plastic kits. I really like the uh, the North Star figs. Yeah, I'd compare them to the old Games Workshop unit boxes. The, like, early 2000s ones, where, it, you know, the unit boxes were just a bunch of sprues with different bits and bobs, and you could combine them in any number of ways to create your little unit of pikemen or riflemen or whatever that was that you had for your imperial army. And they have a bunch of these boxes for different types of models, and they're all sprues with options and that you can pick and choose because it's miniature agnostic, so 
you don't have to buy the official miniatures. They're just there in case you want specific ones that all kind of look the same. You can use anything, literally anything. Any fantasy miniatures, great. Sci-fi miniatures that are, you know, wizards that have magic guns, cool beans. Like you were saying that you were going to have like a special forces dude and a Roman legionnaire because your guy is a chronomancer and he travels through time and gets various people f to be his companions. Cool. Do you want an army that's entirely made of undead? Yeah, you're playing a necromancer. Why not? Yeah, my uh, necromancer army is uh, kind of a mishmash of Reaper, Reaper Bones, and some other companies. Oh, GW's in there. Um, yeah, just the creative element of it is just bonkers. And technically you can do that with any miniature game. I mean, GW is not going to break down your door and ask you at gunpoint why you're not playing with GW miniatures. They would if they could. But just the fact that the freedom is there makes it a lot more fun for me at least. Yeah, and it's cool to see how creative other people get with the game as well. Because people get really creative with their armies. I've seen videos of somebody who did like a entire army of rock people. Nice. I know both you and I have thought about how to make the uh, dog wizard from the Dungeons and Doggies box a Frostgrave leader. Yep, I have actually completed my entire set of Dungeons and Doggies, at least from the first uh, set of them, so they will be ready for in-person Frostgrave whenever that happens. And then I've got the additional dogs that were part of the uh, pirate-themed D&D expansion that they made for that setting. So those will show up at some point. Yeah, no, that's totally within reason. You're wizards. You don't have to explain shit. Don't even bother asking. <laughs> yeah, and the other fun part, beyond just the miniatures, is the terrain. The game is set in a ruined, frozen city, and because it's a skirmish game, it needs a lot of terrain on the board in order to essentially make it work, because you don't have to move big units through, you got to move individual people through, and so you want a board that isn't just open and you can see everybody, you want a board that people have to, like, move around. Yeah, if you have dudes that have line of sight to each other uh, from the very start of the first turn, you need to rethink how your terrain is configured. Yeah, so this means you need terrain. You need houses, you need towers, you need snow-covered trees, ruins, graveyards, statues, broken lecture halls, magical yeah, magical gadgets that have shattered and fallen to the ground and are covered in ice. Any other good fantasy terrain. It all works nicely. Building it is actually a lot of fun, and it's a great place to start if you don't know much about how to build terrain for miniatures. Because it's supposed to be ruins anyway. It doesn't have to look great, because it all collapsed thousands of years ago and got frozen in ice. You can just kind of go nuts, dry brush it up, put a little snow on the base, you're done. Yeah, now that I have both a 3D printer and places to store terrain, uh, I want to start making a lot more Frostgrave stuff, because... Previously, I hadn't done a whole lot of terrain stuff just because terrain by its nature is bigger and needs more storage space, but now I've got plenty of space for it. Yeah, and it, there's a whole lot of things you can make. Some of the scenarios have kind of specific terrain required. Uh, the minecart one that I mentioned, you need minecarts and like rails that they're going to travel on. Some of the expansions have like a dungeon crawl thing going on, so you need sort of dungeon tile terrain where it's there's walls and you're in a more enclosed area i'm casting wall in the walled space and beyond terrain you also well beyond just terrain and warbands the city is full of weird monsters some of them are magical some of them are just live in cold environments some of them are both things they're magical and they live in cold environments so you need a decent selection of monsters. Now, you can try to buy all the monsters that fit in the back of the book and have everything available, 
but it's equally fine to just sort of get some of them and then proxy in whatever you don't have or swap in something else or just fudge the rolls so that you only get the ones that you have. Yeah, I do kind of a combination of proxy versus creative interpretation. Uh, one game we had a, a uh, snow jaguar show up, but the only thing that I had like right at hand was a knight from Dark Souls. So we're like, all right, a knight named the snow jaguar shows up. He's just isn't particularly beefy for an actual knight. I've got enough random fantasy miniatures to field something approximate for most of the things in the book. Um, up to and including the ape. Nice. For the general unusedness that my Dark Souls board game goes through, uh, the miniatures for Dark Souls are perfect for Frostgrave because just about everything that gets described in the back of the book can be found in Dark Souls in some form or another, so it worked out well. Yeah. And one of the nice things is, we mentioned, you know, there was a first edition and a second edition. It's been a successful game. This is not a, yep. they made it once and it got kind of abandoned. There have been a bunch of additional content made, multiple expansions, adding new scenarios, adding new classes for the specialists that you can find, new ways to play, adding a solo campaign sequence, adding linked campaign missions, uh, Hunt the Golem. I specifically think is probably the most famous of that. Yep, I uh, one of my first pandemic projects was making a golem for that, and then a bunch of uh, crushed up corpses in the snow that I got from some Polish company that I can't remember the name of, but they turned out very gross and good looking for that campaign. Whenever we get to use them, I think there was even a magazine that produces content just for Frostgrave. Yeah, it was. I don't know if they actually put it into print, but I know it was digital. It was called Spellcaster. Um, there were five issues. I don't know if it was something that they had intended on being something that was ongoing or if it was just, hey, here's some stray ideas that we have from Frostgrave. Let's put them in a cheap little magazine that people can use. Um, I've got all of those. They've got some interesting scenarios. Um, there's one where there's a dragon in the middle of the table and it's sleep and you're trying to sneak in and steal all the treasure from the dragon and not wake it up. And if you wake it up, all hell breaks loose. I love it. That's a fantastic scenario. There's optional rules for gunpowder, since gunpowder, officially, according to the lore, doesn't exist in this fantasy universe, but they did make some optional rules for gunpowder weapons. Uh, they made optional rules for cavalry. There was one specific issue for uh, I can't remember it's one of the one of the creatures from one of the expansions but they did like a whole thing about them they're like the reindeer people but yeah there, there's a lot of neat stuff in there um, it would be nice if they did what they did with the Frostgrave folio and just be like okay here's the spellcaster supplement and just put them all into one big book that I can reference instead of having to flip through my Kindle you know when all the shenanigans that entails. Yeah, that would be nice. And it's also created a number of spin-offs. Uh, the first one being Ghost Archipelago, which is essentially a reskin of the game where you play as pirate crews in a tropical island chain rather than a frozen city. Arg. It, it changes a few things because, you know, you're pirates, not wizards. And I've heard good things about it. I haven't really played it heavily myself. I only have time for so many cool skirmish war games. Ghost Archipelago, Archipelago, it seemed interesting, but it didn't really catch on quite as well as the base game did. Um, I think part of it could be the fact that it's hard to work in that pirate captain character with how the rest of the game, I guess, like the base game functions. Because, you know, how do you, how do you make a super-powered pirate captain they kind of come across as like pirate x-men kind of just because they have weird supernatural abilities and thematically it's a little bit weird uh i i still like the general gist of it that you know you're exploring spooky 
Caribbean insert islands. But it just never seemed to catch on quite as much, and I don't know if he's going to do a second E for that one or where that one's going to go. Yeah. Um, another one is Rangers of Shadowdeep, which is essentially the same core system, but it's a single-player co-op narrative war game that's entirely scenario-based. uses basically the same D20 mechanics, but different stat lines, where you play as a ranger in sort of the Lord of the Rings tradition, where you can use spells and magic and swords and bows and your little warband of companions and try to accomplish goals against a terrifying mystical enemy. I really like Rangers of Shadowdeep. It's, we're going to have a whole episode on it at some point. Yeah, when you mentioned Rangers, I was like, wait, I figured he would do an entire show just about that one in itself. Yeah, we will. I'm just bringing it up here because it's by the same author. It's kind of a spinoff. It's in the Frostgrave expanded universe. It may or may not actually be in the Frostgrave universe. Uh, there's a note about gnolls and how they may have originated in an ancient lost city of magic that's been frozen for thousands of years. Oh boy. So they might be connected or they might not. I need to I need to get the uh, the knoll box set now and make us some official knoll miniatures. Oh, I, I need to get the Null Box set for the same reason, but yes. it's I love Rangers of Shadowdeep. It's single player. It's been fantastic during the pandemic to have a miniatures game to play. And I really need to continue with the campaign of it that I've been doing. And then there's also Stargrave, which was published last year. Woo! It's a sci-fi version of Frostgrave with the rules adapted for the different style of play and the tropes of science fiction. You have your the captain of your ship who has certain powers they could be like he wears cybernetic armor or he's a mutant with psychic powers or whatever and the first mate instead of an apprentice who interestingly can have a completely different set of powers and then you have your the crew of your starship and you go around to different planets collecting loot and doing missions and stuff it it's another, again, we'll probably have an entire episode on that once we've had a chance to play it a few times between ourselves. Yeah, I'm still trying to decide what I want to do for miniatures for that one. I might just go with the North Star figs for that one because they have a really cool, like, Silver Age sci-fi aesthetic, and I really dig it. I'd, I'd call it more of like an 80s sci-fi aesthetic. 80s sci-fi? Like 70s, 80s. Some some kind of classic sci-fi, but I, I dig it, and I would like to use those, because um, I don't find a whole lot of sci-fi miniatures that I like just kind of out in the wild, uh, but those North Star ones I do. I've got a few different things that I could consider using, and I've got some of the some great guys for the random, like, baddies the pirates and the stuff that you run into on occasion pirates and mm -hmm. bounty hunters it's fun it, it it's very fun and all of these games have really strong communities uh there's some great reddit pages devoted to these games there's some great facebook groups devoted to these games including like local facebook groups that you might want to check out if you're looking for someone to play in your area there's some YouTube channels that have done great Let's Plays and playthroughs of different scenarios and different missions of Frostgrave that you can check out if you're interested in seeing how the game plays on the table. Uh, I personally like Gorilla Miniatures games and his playthroughs of it. Yeah! He does a really good job of taking you through the basics of the rules and then creating interesting warbands that have character and fighting it out. Subscribe to the podcast so we can get big enough to have an interview with him. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be pretty fun. I highly recommend Frostgrave. I think it's great. Ed, anything you want to say about your experiences with it? It's freaking awesome. And basically the game that got me back into miniatures wargaming. I took a bit of a break for a few years uh, when I was in college and couldn't afford 
GW stuff, because up until that point, I didn't know of anything beyond the GW bubble. And I can't remember if it was Gorilla Miniatures or somebody else on YouTube that introduced me to the game. But I was like, oh, sweet, that looks awesome. And basically re-kickstarted my gaming habits. So if you want a game that's very low investment, do that. I mean, if you really wanted to, you could get little Lego minifigs and play the game that way. I've, I've seen videos of people playing it with Lego, so yeah. If you've got the Lego sitting around and you want to do a game, Frostgrave is probably the rule set you should use. Like most of the games that I tend to enjoy, they're fairly low investment. Because then if the game doesn't get played or if there's downtime between games, I don't feel like I've wasted a, a giant heap of money. Yeah, and I mean, technically, all you need to play is the rulebook, two D20s, a, like, 3x3 three three area that you could maybe draw on for terrain, and a bunch of tokens. You could play it without actually using miniatures, if you wanted. I think it's much more fun to do it with miniatures, because the interaction between miniatures and having actual terrain is so much fun and makes it so visually appealing, but you don't need to. And I've come up with a few cool miniatures bands for this. I've got plenty of fantasy guys, so really it's just a matter of painting a wizard that I like, and then grabbing from my box of fantasy miniatures enough guys that sort of fit with that wizard to go for it. I bought miniatures so that I could make an all-tiefling version with a summoner and his, like, devil sidekicks. Yeah, I've got a whole bunch of options available if I want to make a warband for it, which is great that you don't have to do a whole lot. You can do a very specific warband, you can buy specific models for it if you want to, or you can just be like, I have this box of pikemen from some other game and i'm going to use them as the core of my army for this yeah in general i tend to try and go with themes um, i have my undead team who has like a mummified pharaoh and then a weird collection of uh like victorian zombies um i have my animal adventure set that's all dogs Eventually, there'll be another one that's all cats. Um, I still want to do the Time Traveler, because I have a bunch of just random miniatures, and figure having a time-traveling wizard would be a good excuse to use some of those. There are a couple of things I don't like about Frostgrave. Heresy. Well, I figure we gotta talk about it. And they are basically related to the rules system more than to anything else about the game. The D20 mechanic that you use for rolling stuff can be very swingy. It is entirely possible for a generic skeleton that walks onto the table to murder its way through your entire army because it rolls well and all your knights and soldiers roll poorly. The same goes for spell casting. The system is very swingy. It can go poorly, it can go great. You can be winning, 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 and then you roll the wrong thing, and your wizard just dies. It's good for telling stories, but it, it, it's a, kind of an awkward system. Additionally, some of the spells are a little open to abuse. Uh, the teleport spell, the leap spell, wall to some extent. There is no such thing as abusing wall. Yeah, there is. Can all be open to abuse and kind of... It can lead to a game being fun for one player and unfun for the other. Not nearly as bad as other games do it, but it can be swingy, it can be a little clunky at times. It's not to say that I don't like the game, it's just that it has some flaws. And knowing them ahead of time sort of helps you to understand what's good and what's not great about the game. I don't think I've 
had a game of Frostgrave yet that I would consider unfun. Uh, the closest that I could think of would be mild frustration with my the opponent that I play with the most. His strategy is basically just to pick up all the treasure and run, and nine times out of ten, well, maybe not nine times, maybe like seven times out of ten, he'll get a majority of the treasure, and somehow I'm still trying to like pick up the scraps or pick off his dudes, but it's a ridiculously simple strategy that works a lot. Yeah, I think he may have found it slightly unfun that time that you just one-shotted his wizard. That is true, but it made for a good story, at least for me. It's a great story, but again, your most important dude can just get one-shotted off the map on the first time a spell is cast. Well, I guess, to be fair, at least to him, uh, the turn after that happened, my wizard got knocked into the well and removed from the board by a random monster who just came up behind him and gave him a shove. That is the sort of thing that happens in Frostgrave, but that's what I mean by it can be swingy. In any case, Frostgrave. It's fun. Yay. It's a great way to get into miniatures games if you don't want to go to Games Workshop and if you want to try something that's a little more freeform. If you're coming from Dungeons & Dragons, Frostgrave is a good starter. So that's all for Frostgrave. On this podcast, we have a segment we like to call Board Game Corner. Today, we're talking Wingspan. Wingspan is a board game for one to five players designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and published in 2019. It's card-driven, engine-building board game where essentially the goal is to attract birds to a wildlife reserve. It's a very pretty game. The artwork on the birds is really good. Uh, it portrays the habitat and has like little facts about each bird that you get, which is kind of cool. Um, and the engine building gameplay is really interesting and I enjoy it. It also features a bird feeder dice tower. <laughs> nice. Which is pretty great. You roll the dice to get the various types of food that you need to play the cards and get your birds out. You have a certain number of actions each round, and as the number of rounds go on, you get more actions. You play birds, you fill in your wildlife reserve, you get points based on how many birds and which birds you have, and so on and so forth. It It's fun. It has a lot of cool mechanics going on. It's we talked about a game gamist narrativist simulationist. It falls heavily on the gamist side because it's about engine building and about getting things to happen after other things and scoring these points. There's no narrativist element at all. You you are not telling a story about these birds. You are not telling a story about your wildlife preserve. You're just getting birds and getting points and putting eggs on the birds in order to get new birds and get more points. It's birds all the way down. Yeah, it's just a game system all the way down, It's but it's very pretty, and it has cool information about the birds, and it looks really nice on the table, and the tokens are... It has little egg tokens in various colors, and they're co just cool to have. The one thing, the one downside I'll say about it is that the last turn of the game plays very similarly for everyone. No matter what engine you've built, the final turn of the game, what you should do is get eggs. Because eggs are worth one point each, and you've only got a limited number of actions left in the game. Getting as many eggs as you can will get you the most points. Get them eggs. Almost every time in the final round. You gotta get eggs. But Wingspan, I highly like it. It's a fun game. It's not a simple party game. The fact that it's limited to five players at most kind of draws that. The fact that games take 45 to 90 minutes sort of is that a little. And the more complicated nature of the rules nixes the like easy party game thing. But it's a very fun, very... You can get very into Wingspan. There's also a digital version available on a couple of things. I think you can find that on Steam. 
I haven't played it. I've played the real version. I like it. I think Wingspan's fun. Get them birds. Do they have any expansions with parrots? Uh, no. The core box is just birds from North America. They have a European expansion and an Oceania expansion uh, that has, you know, emus and stuff. They need a they need an Australian one that's just nothing but crows and cockatoos. Well, I mean, the Oceania expansion includes Australia, right? Maybe. Because Oceania is Australia, New Zealand, Southern Pacific, all that stuff. Can the emus go to war with other birds? I'm not sure. I don't know what the emu-specific abilities are, but I would have to guess yes. Someday I actually will get around to writing that emu war board game. Yeah, we, we really do need to make that happen. In any case, that's our podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at at Country. We're on Instagram at Country. And if you like the podcast, please rate, subscribe, like it on whatever platform you're listening to it on. That helps other people find it and enjoy it. If you didn't like the podcast, deal with it. Follow us on social media and tell us why. We'll only listen to you if you're actually following us on social media. Ed, any promos, commercials? Uh, follow me at Anna Madness on Instagram. I've started posting more Marvel stuff there, and maybe there will be some more Frostgrave stuff. Also, check out our uh, Twitter and buy our Knoll Country branded Auto Ponderer for when you are too busy to ponder your orb. The Auto Ponderer will do it for you. The Auto Ponderer is definitely not a small mirror that you set next to your orb. It could be. Definitely not. And anyone who says otherwise is lying. Go Knowles! Go Knowles! Go Knowles!